Hello, welcome back to the Rippling Pages podcast. Today, I'm with Soraya Palmer, and she's here to talk to me about the human origins of Beatrice Porter and other essential ghosts. Ultimately, this is a novel about stories. Sasha and Zora, young girls growing up in Brooklyn, listen to their mothers and fathers' stories about old high, a mystic who flies through the sky like a fireball and sucks your blood. Or listen to the stories about Anansi, a spider, a weaver of stories described as a god who exists to make a scene. But it's in these stories that truths lie. Truths about relationships, truths about history, truths about traumatic pasts. A novel described by the New York Times as a book written with the gods of storytelling in mind. It highlights what stories can do, that it's not just the stories that evolve with each telling, but we ourselves who are rearranged too. Elsewhere, Soraya advocates for survivors of gender-based violence who are facing criminal charges related to their abuse. I'm very excited to say Soraya joins me from Brooklyn to tell us more. Soraya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, really excited to talk to you today. And what we'll do, we'll get straight into it. Because um, as I've just alluded to there, uh, this is a novel full of stories. Which story came first to you in the writing of the novel? The first one actually is chapter one. Um, that I actually had a version of it that I wrote in undergrad. Um, so a long time ago. Um, and at that time, I didn't know I was writing a novel. I was just writing about a family that liked to tell stories. And I liked the idea of like stories within stories and how the family used folklore to kind of approach conflict. Um, and I was also just very interested in like food which I don't know if it ended up being as major of a theme by the end, because the second the second one I wrote was is now um, chapter five in the restaurant. So I think in the beginning, there was like a big food theme going about like, uh, I mean, food is very important in the Caribbean as our stories. And I just liked the idea of them using the food and the stories to show love and to try to explain the unexplainable and yeah so so you started uh, at the start well the novel is centered around uh, a family and the first scene is when they're going to the supermarket to buy groceries um so not necessarily having a meal themselves but they're buying groceries um and i thought i thought it was a really interesting introduction to this family and i wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about the family before we go into that scene, maybe? I think that I was interested in having like a Caribbean American family in Brooklyn. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, and then my mom is Trinidadian and my dad is Jamaican and they both love stories. Um, and so I think I brought that into it for sure. And yeah, and I also have a close relationship with um, my siblings. And I kind of wanted that, especially like the sister relationship, I think is a, particularly interesting to me. Um, and I just wanted that to be central, just like um, how your sister can be your best friend and the complexities of like mother daughter relationships, especially with um, Sasha and her mom. Yeah. The sister, the sister's a folk, the focal point to the novel, really. Um mm -hmm. And I, I have a sister too. And I, you know, I, um, it made me think about sort of my relationship with her. And, um, but what I find interesting is how you write the voices of both these, both the sisters, you're not exclusively in one mind. Did that come naturally or was that a, 
was that a difficult thing to do or does that say something about the closeness of these two sisters I mean so like originally when I was just writing stories um I think and they were all just sort of separate characters but that were sort of similar so then when I kind of combined them into one book it kind of created two distinct characters because like they have a lot of similarities but also some like you know apparent differences and so I think I took the things that I don't know the things that maybe could have been contradictory if it was just one character and kind of made it two different characters if that makes sense you know the fact that Zora is very optimistic and like her love for writing um her kind of wanting to believe the best in like her dad and like in everybody that things will work out. Um, and Sasha being a little bit more jaded about things and guarded. Um, like, I feel like those are things that I, I relate to both those, those ways of thinking and feeling. And so I think it was not difficult to sort of, um, put myself in those minds because I think that they're both kind of relatable to me. They are, they are different, but they are, I don't know. I don't think this is a, a thing about um, siblings anyway, you know, you, it's this strange thing. Like you can become incredibly different, but you ultimately, you, you are from the same, you know, from the same blood, you have the same inherit, you know, from the same parents. Um, and this, I think that's what the, the, the real appeal is, is, is in this book. And it is so centered around the family, even though it sort of refracts and goes into lots of different narratives. I don't know if you found that. I don't know if that, the, the appeal of having, you know, they weren't, they could have, if there were two friends, you wouldn't be able to sort of play on the same dynamics, maybe? Um, like there's, there's things about their relationship that could be like a best friendship that changes over time. But I think it's different when you have the same parents because, like, you know, I think part of them, growing apart was at times like Sasha seeing how Zora gets treated differently, you know, by the dad um, or like Zora not wanting to admit that the dad's having an affair or like, you know, things like that, I think are things that kind of drove them apart as sisters that might not have necessarily happened if they were just friends with two different families. It's very bittersweet novels really kind of sad moment well there's there's, some, there's lots of very sad moments but in terms of the kind of relationships between the sister particularly the mother there's some really real tinge to the you know nicer moments have together there is a kind of sad, sort of sad sort of edge to it i mean i guess well to go back to that to that first scene because it introduces a lot some of the ideas that that, that, that do play throughout the novel and it just felt like a bit of an encapsulation of this, some of the dynamics that are going on here within within the family um, and it introduced to the sort of particularly an early it's an early scene for the father at that point in writing this and just because you've said you you know you sort of start with this at the start did you kind of see the trajectory of the father going into kind of violence that he did that, that we find out about yes in that in the first chapter yeah I knew that that was it was kind of going to erupt I think that I tried to show like I mean I've heard some people say Nigel's like the villain and I don't think of him that way um I really wanted to show just like all the different parts of him um the ways that he's hurting you know because of 
feeling not man enough for his dad and like what happened with his brother um not being able to open up and the way that you know he can take things out on people just like his own warped views about masculinity and how they like affect his family um but also how it affects him and gives him like a smaller life those different ideas for him and just we're just trying to find ways to show them all throughout the book and so it's not just like he's violent he's you know a womanizer or whatever yeah it's a, it's a diff- it's a difficult read at times in terms of uh father nigel um because you present those different aspects to him, because you see him in these moments where, you know, he has been violent and abusive, but there is these other aspects to his narrative that you bring in. Um, and obviously you go back in time as well, which which we'll come to in a moment. But So they're buying groceries and, and it turns out that they don't have enough money or to pay for the groceries. And it leads him to telling the story about the rolling calf. Um, and at that point in the novel, we're not really kind of aware of the sort of significance of the father telling the story. Uh, it kind of seems like a bit of a distraction away from. Um, and then they get home and then the sisters, uh, Zora and Sasha, they start telling their own stories to one another. But they're doing it in the in the backdrop of the mother and father uh, having uh, an argument. I mean, there's different variations, but the way like my dad used to tell it to me was um and the way I write about it is um that it's somebody that gets almost condemned to be a rolling calf because of being a butcher in life and um it's a looks like a bull and it has like breathes fire and it has like a rattling chain for a tail um and it's usually told as like a type of ghost story and and it's also not only like as a ghost story, but like, I guess maybe like an urban legend, because it's usually like, oh, I knew somebody that this happened to or something where, you know, they're, they're walking home and like, you know, or like my aunt said that she saw, like, she heard the chains and, you know, she saw some fire and then like ran away or, you know, things like that. And these, this is, you know, these are real stories, well, stories from um, Caribbean folklore. Is it specific? Is it specifically um, Trinidadian? The rolling calf is more Jamaican, there, so it's kind of a mix of both. Anansi is in both, and of course, uh, there's also Anansi stories in West Africa too. But then there's some like Old Hag is Jamaican, but then in Trinidad there's the Sukuyant, which is kind of the same thing. Um, they just have different names. Same with Mama Glow is in Trinidad, yeah. but there's also like River Muma. What I found interesting is that, that another way that the the, sist- the sisters, Sasha and Zora, distract themselves is by watching horror films. I don't, was it intentionally the purpose to put all of these in? Because they do pop up from time to time. I was interested in the way like American pop culture played a role for them and just, Thinking, so not just horror, but um, in thinking that they're, they're this Caribbean family in Brooklyn and it's all this like very white media um, with the horror. Um, I mean, some of it was like because of what was happening 
in the plot, like with the exorcist. Um, well, that actually is somewhat based on a real story where um, when I was younger and I watched the exorcist and, um, and we weren't supposed to watch the exorcist, I think me and my sister. And, um, All right. <laughs> and then that night I did really feel like my room was possessed because I would hear like the walls beating and like all these weird sounds and like all, all this stuff was happening. And I like, um, we didn't actually do an exorcism or like, like we didn't do all of that, but, um, I definitely stopped sleeping in my room and we found out it was a bird's nest in the walls or that's what they say. That's right. what they said was that it was a bird's nest. I'm still not convinced. So I, I that particular story, I think um, I just wanted to kind of recreate. In other ways, I think that it was just interesting to look at. Um, well, like I said, the pop culture, but also um, the way that violence plays such a role. And hor yeah, yeah. horror is like this entertainment, but it's also something that they that, that it was happening to them. And that they're trying to navigate or like avoid thinking about. And I think it's kind of interesting to use horror to do that because there's also horrors happening to you um, that you don't want to look at, but you're like choosing to look at these others for fun. How do kids understand violence, you know, and how do they try to explain it? And horror movies are very much like not really for kids, but kids often sneak in and watch them and then have all these crazy like theories and paranoias and whatever. <laughs> I don't know if it is. I don't know. I don't know what you think about this. I don't, do you think that there is a particular appeal in the violence of the horror film? Is, is that the kind of what the spectacle of it? Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's so many reasons people get drawn to horror in general, but that could be like a whole other <laughs> podcast. But um, for the sisters, um, I think it was partly the violence, but also like it wasn't all like like Buffy, for instance, I think um, for Zora was more of like a like a solve, like a like a comfort blanket in a way, like somebody that she just grew up with as like a hero. I mean, I have a like a complicated relationship with horror where I can get very easily scared, but I've always been very fascinated by it because I think that it can do such a good job of like commenting on society in ways that other genres ne can't necessarily. And they often are able to do like very weird stuff. Watching a horror movie as a choice can feel more like you're taking some control back because you're choosing to watch it and you're not scared or like, or you are scared, but you're like navigating through it or something. Hey there, just a quick message from me. And just to say, if you're really enjoying today's podcast, I'd be really grateful if you left a review on your favorite podcast provider. The Rippling Pages is all about letting writers talk about their craft so that you and other listeners can learn more about the art of literature. Leaving a review increases the reach of the podcast and hopefully means that more people will hear about the writer's work. Thanks very much, and it's just great to have you here. Why did you choose to call it a ghost story? You know, like I mentioned, like the rolling calf, I feel like is definitely told to be like a kind of urban legend type of ghost story. Of course, like others, like Anansi is like a trickster story 
not necessarily technically a ghost, but like a spirit. The difference between ghost and spirit and ancestor is kind of like sometimes a connotation, cultural connotation, um, that ghosts usually just have the connotation of being more scary, but like a spirit or an ancestor, maybe you can learn something from them. But I think really they could all be called ghosts. Um, you know, our hist our past history historical traumas can also be like ghosts of our past as well. And so I think I was interested in the term in a more broader sense, not just like as a horror, but like all of the ways that we think about ghosts, like, you know, beloved um, is, I mean, you could call that horror also, but I think it's also like similarly looking at um, the trauma of slavery um, also as a different type of haunting. Um, and I think that in a lot of Black ghost stories, you you kind of see both the literal manifestations of spirits, but then also just all these other things that might be haunting the characters. My book, in terms of like thinking about what are all the things that are haunting these characters, so. Nigel was haunted by the rolling calf, but also by his brother. Um, and then Sasha also is haunted by the rolling calf as well. And Sasha also gets sort of guided by the spirit of Anansi, like the mother does. And then the mother also has the ghost of Anakawana. So I think like, you know, there's just like these different times where these different ghosts will show up for them but then also their pasts haunt them yeah definitely and if sometimes it feels like 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 you've alluded to or like you've said it sometimes it feels you know actions that they've done and but also yeah more kind of generational haunting why is it why is it those particular myths that are significant why is it those particular stories that are significant i mean these are stories i grew up with um so they're really important to me that way. I think, you know, a lot of the stories, I think, have origins in in Africa. And so one of the things that is cool is that um, when I'm in the Caribbean, I think that I can feel this kind of closer link to my own ancestors, I think, because they've been able to hold on to more through stories and through food and religion um music you know like all these different things um that i think were i guess harder in the states probably also because slavery lasted longer um and we're also not the majority here so i feel like it that also makes it harder to hold on to that um Anansi in the Caribbean, um, which I think is different from Anansi in like Ghana and Nigeria. Um, but in the Caribbean, Anansi stories were often like parallels for kind of overcoming uh, your oppressors. Um, and I think a lot of trickster stories can be sort of like that, um, where it's like, you know, 
here is this little spider that you would think could never overpower, you know, a lion or a tiger. And yet, you know, it's able to use its kind of trickster ways um, and wit and all of this stuff to gain the upper hand. You know, it's not like, I think unlike a lot of kind of Western fairy tales where there's often like one specific like moralistic lesson at the end. Um, I think a lot of the stories can be, have different interpretations. Like Anansi is sometimes a hero and sometimes a villain and sometimes, you know, none of the above. And and I kind of like that, that it's just a little bit more, it's like a multiverse, I guess, of of versions of um, Anansi and like all of the characters really like Mama Glow, I think can be described as like a healer, but then also can be violent as well. To me, it makes sense that those are stories that would be created and like um, passed down in the Caribbean versus Germany where like the grim fairy tales were because um, of course you wouldn't necessarily have like easy ways of thinking about um, good or evil when like the things that you were taught were good by your colonizers were, you know, full of contradictions because they're also colonizing you and taking all your resources and like whatever and telling you to go to church. And I think that it's, it's harder to maybe come up with like a simple fairy tale. And this is, I also love, you know, grim fairy tales and Hans Christian Andersen too, but I think it just comes from a very different culture. Instead of, it doesn't become necessarily, it does become about the story, but Anansi is alive. It's a live thing that changes and moves. You know, it's not not reliant on the story itself, if that makes sense. It's this thing that is kind of alive. We're introduced to the mother, Beatrice, obviously at the start. But what we do is we go back in time to learn more about uh, Beatrice. Um, and we see a lot of different... We see a lot of different sides to mother. And this really brings uh, a very different aspect to her, a different perspective uh, to Beatrice. Some of the things that she endured, some of the... the well, how she brought some of the stories with her as well uh, from the Caribbean. Why did you choose that particular aspect as the starting point? Well, it's not the literal starting point of the novel, but why did you go back to that as the starting point for uh, the mother? Back into the 70s uh, before she moved to America. Well, I think for both of the parents, I kind of went back to their kind of coming of age story because I think that was such a big focus for the book and like we spend so much time on that with Sasha and Zora and so I kind of wanted to see how that developed for the parents and for Beatrice I think we needed to know more about her relationship with um Sasha um because it seemed like they were always butting heads um and yet they have so much in common um, and kind of looking to see, you know, how that started for her and her own relationship with her mother. And yeah, kind of, and like her relationship with love before Nigel. Um, like, I think I wanted to see all of those things. 
what I just find interesting is that we sort of it kind of compared to the other characters with with Beatrice, we see her. It feels like we see sort of all her lives happening at once. So we see her when she's young. We see her when she's sort of like I said, learning different kinds of love, and we see her when she's older, and and you know what that brings. You used the word multiverse, didn't you? And it feels like that's kind of what's going on with the mother. I don't know if that's fair or not. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, seeing her as a teenager, and then in that chapter, um, it like alludes a lot to her future the things she wanted for her future, like the origin of the Nancy stories book um, and where she got it and like kind of her love for stories, I think is connected to that as well. Um, How she got her scars. And then we see her also when she first meets Nigel, her past gets alluded to later on um, with Sasha when um they're telling the Anansi stories together and and she kind of lets Sasha in finally. Is that is that is that what it feels like I think when she when she finally sort of lets her in? That's how it felt for me, like um, but Sasha finally understood why she was kind of pushing her away or like where the anger was coming towards Sasha's own identity um and that it was really more about Beatrice's own struggle um which I think honestly is true a lot of the time when parents can't accept their kids it might not be as direct as that um but like you know it usually has more to do with them you know I think it was like this very painful thing that happens to Beatrice that she I don't think she ever really told anybody about she kind of just decided to try to be a very devout Christian and like um, live her life a different way. Um, And then all of a sudden she has, you know, this daughter who's like reminding her of her past. And I think it brought up a lot for her. And yeah, I feel like it was the first time we see her like open up about what happened, even though she doesn't end up saying that very much about it, but yeah, and and readers, you know, they'll they'll sort of find out more about what what that is. We don't want to give too much away, I don't think. But I kind of it, what what's is there a, is there is there a way of healing through all this? But is there it, what is you know what does heal? I mean, I think healing is like a whole process and journey. You know, like I don't know if there's like one thing to help you heal. But I do think them trying to tell their stories through these other stories was their way of trying to heal. And also just being able to be there for each other. I think Sasha and Zora do that a lot, um, telling each other stories to help each other through something that was difficult. And I do think by the end, they're more healed. But they still have, like, you know, ways to go. Yeah, we spoke a lot about stories and what their roles and what purposes. And in, you know, in 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 your novel, they seem to conceal, disguise, hide the truth, for better, for worse. But this is a novel where, to me, it seems anyway, uh, permission and boundaries are not always respected, sometimes abused in relationships and, you know, in history as well. 
this idea of um, something that's repeated quite a lot is this, um, let me tell you a story. Can't say, let me tell you a story. And it becomes something of a refrain through the novel. And it almost felt like it was a way of uh, soliciting uh, permission in some sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just, it kind of first came out of like the narrator's voice. It just seemed like something she would say. Um, and it's also just, like, I feel like usually every storyteller has a refrain, whether it's like once upon a time or like whatever. Um, quick crack. So in this case, it's, let me tell you a story. So it's a direct, it's a direct invocation to the reader. Isn't it? it's a, you're directly saying to. Yeah. I wanted to be talking directly to the readers and like kind of just this idea that the book is sort of alive and that the mm. voice is in there um and that she's like demanding their attention i guess it's a, it kind of opens up this kind of contract with the reader in a way this kind of direct relationship because you say at the start you know i need you to say i need you to save my life you're sort of keeping me alive by reading uh this novel this story uh soraya Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the human origins of Beatrice Porter and other essential ghosts. Uh, it's out uh, at the end of April from Serpent's Tale. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks once again to Sarai for joining me for today's episode. And of course, my thanks to you for watching as well. Next time, I am going to be joined by Duncan Vines, and I'm talking to him about his new book, published by Lolly. Jones.